This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends, the puzzle strategy game which the fun never stops with. Now we're inching towards the normality that we've all been craving for ages right now, aren't we? And summer is coming. We can soon get out and about, we can enjoy time with friends, perhaps even get away for a break somewhere. I'm sure that we've all earned it, eh? And for a perfect travel companion, look no further than Best Fiends. If you're totally over the same old puzzle games, then you'll find that Best Fiends is the game for you. It's so much more than your average. In Minutia, the colourful world that the makers of Best Fiends have created, you'll collect and use a variety of unique colourful little characters like Lapoleon and Eleanor to help you progress on your quest to rid the land of slugs using rockets, bombs, destroying crates, beach balls, cages, shells, there's all sorts to be found with it. Thousands of levels, constant new events and updates, it's great. I'm hundreds of levels up right now in Best Fiends myself because it's the type of game that appeals to me. A puzzle strategy game that makes me think about my moves ahead, but one that's fun and casual enough also that I can still enjoy it and I don't get wound up by it. And I'm always finding it slick and fresh looking whenever I think, oh, just do this level. And before you know it, boom, half an hour's gone. Stay in touch with your friends and loved ones by playing Best Fiends alongside them, sharing your progress on the leaderboard. Or why not just relax and enjoy playing this awesome mobile puzzle game by yourself? You won't even need to be online to enjoy playing Best Fiends, and once you do, you'll be as hooked on it as I am. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Hello all and the warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales spare room based true crime podcast, where I seek out those tales that have proper interested me, that I hope will interest you too, of obscure and often forgotten crimes that I seek out from the darkest corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. It's as fabulous as ever having you joining me here today which I thank you so much for doing so, and I hope that as the episode finds you, then you and all that are dear to you are all good, you're all safe, and you're all well. So I'm back after a short break of a couple of weeks, which went unbelievably fast, I tell you, but has allowed me to crack on with this series arc, the start of which drops here. I did also write and release the latest Patreon episode in my downtime, however, a disturbing and tragic case that I entitled An Offering to the Angels. So I haven't just been sat twiddling or anything, I don't really know how to be bored anymore. On the subject of Patreon, by the way, big thanks are going out this time around to new supporters Sam Collins, Claire Fisher, Lees, Laura Smith, Gemma Brett, Tom McClelland, Connie Jones, and Gabes, plus Lucy Helicker. Barry Rice, the fabulously named Cosmic Dog, Anne Cunningham, Barry Porter, Hayes Selby D, Jill, Constance Newbold and Nicola Hamel who have each opted to annually support the show. Thank you so much folks, it's so very kind of you to do and it really is so very much appreciated. Now if you want to join this kind lot and become a Patreon supporter yourself, perhaps you might want a bit of show swag to be coming your way, or you just want to hear the stories behind bonus episodes such as Death of a Brighton Schoolboy, Obsession by the Sea, Disfigured, or The Cannibal and the Cowboy, whatever it is that tickles you in your spots, then to do so is easier than getting Chris Whitty in a headlock, and will probably get you into less shit by doing so. You just head on over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there. Always remember that podcast suffix though, or you may struggle to find it. But once you do, it's got the same show logo and everything there. Or you don't even need to do that really, because there's an ever-clickable link to the show's Patreon page in the episode show notes each and every time. There's a good full series worth of unaired bonus episodes there, some 20 plus, 23 or 4 I think. The latest offering, as I said, an offering to the angels, having been released just a few days ago. So I'm eager to crack on here with this tale, for what a tale it is, I promise you, which we shall do so following a short word from the show sponsors, BetterHelp. Now if there's something that's interfering with your happiness and is preventing you reaching any goals that you have, then BetterHelp can help you. Think about how trying recent times have been and continue to be, 
I know personally that I've certainly found it so, dealing with the current conditions we find ourselves living with, on top of other things that life throws at you such as bereavement or work major work changes. It's been a proper tough one trying to be there as much as possible for my loved ones and friends. We all need help at some point in our lives too, and this is where better help comes in. Now just to clarify, this isn't self-help that's being advocated here. What BetterHelp does is assesses whatever issues that you may be facing and calling on the broad range of expertise it has available, with specialists in a vast range of issues available, some of which you may not have locally available to you. It matches you up with your own licensed professional therapist for professional counselling, one that's selected that best suits your needs. For whatever it is that's troubling you, any issues that you may have from depression through to sleeping troubles, in less than 24 hours you can begin communicating with your own personal counsellor in a private and confidential online environment. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with them, message them anytime you wish, and you'll get thoughtful and timely responses and feedback from them in return. BetterHelp is available for clients anywhere in the world to use. It's a much more affordable service than any traditional offline counselling, and even has financial aid available for the use of the service for those who may need it. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. Right then, it's time for the long-promised series arc. The tale I've selected, when I first started The Enthusiast almost four years ago now, was one of the very first idea mark that I wanted to eventually give my spin on, because I've long found it to be one of the most fascinating, horrific cases I've ever studied. I didn't know it was going to be so long in coming here to the show, granted, but four years ago I didn't even know if I'd still be doing the show today. So there you go. Surprisingly, this also isn't a tale that I've heard covered by any other shows to date. Perhaps the complexity of the whole tale is a bit daunting to do. But I felt it a perfect one for a series multi-episode arc. I don't think anything but that would do it justice properly. It's a tale that will span many years in total. And it has it all this one does. Horror, evil, groundbreaking investigative tools, legal firsts. And if you don't know the case from the off, then you'll meet not just one, but two of the most evil individuals that you will ever come across and are never likely to forget them. The case is one of the most infamous in British criminal history and more widely known under a different moniker really. But how I've planned it out in my head, I've opted to call it the Thriller Arc. I hope that the reason for that will become clear as the tale progresses. I've also roped in a good friend of the show, Jess Carter, the host of the Outlines podcast, to assist with bringing this tale to you. She did some really sterling work on this, she really did, so look out for Jess's contribution too as the tale progresses. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving that of a sexual nature that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use your discretion whilst you're listening in or Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the first part of the Thriller Arc, an episode I've entitled, Two Bodies with One Brain. So how else do you begin something called the Thriller Arc, unless you read out the following, the opening lyrics to the Jacko song? Now I'm not singing them or anything, and I haven't got a red leather jacket on I promise, it's been cleaned at the moment but I'll say them here because they are pretty apt, and though I'm sure that you know them off by heart anyway, unless you live under a bloody rock or at the bottom of the sea or something, just bear in mind the following and think about them as the episode progresses. It's close to midnight and something evil's lurking in the dark. Under the moonlight, you see a sight that almost stops your heart. You try to scream, but terror takes the sound before you make it. You start to freeze as horror looks you right between the eyes. You're paralysed. Because this is Thriller. Thriller night. It's so hard to say that without singing it. It really is. 
For a number of years, the two men, we won't be meeting them properly just yet. So for this episode and going forward, we shall call them taller and shorter, or words to that effect. I'd long been thinking about abducting a woman, torturing her, and then raping her. Close friends for many years, they fantasised that after initially snatching her off the street, they would tie her up, would blindfold her, would drive her around North London to disorient her, including walking her around and even up across rooftops, and would finally hold her hostage in the shorter man's flat. So often had they talked about doing this that they could really visualise the horror of what they had planned with extreme clarity. And one weekend in June 1982, which coincided with the shorter man's wife being away on a work training course, they set to work preparing to make their fantasy a reality to put their plan into action. As soon as his wife had left, the windows of the flat were covered up and the place was somewhat soundproofed, and a mattress was dragged into the room that they'd selected for their horrific purposes. Setting out later that evening, Thursday the 10th of June 1982, in the taller man's car, the pair found themselves cruising around the area of North London, nearby to where both lived, searching for a suitable victim. They wanted someone they could easily overpower, though the knives each were armed with would surely guarantee little, if any, resistance. Before in the early hours of the Friday morning, they drove along North End Way by Hampstead Heath. The taller man's eyes lit up as he spotted the young woman making her way along the deserted road, and after finding a spot to park up nearby, both men got out of the car and silently began to follow her. The woman, a 20-year-old au pair who was walking home alone from a party, was brutally accosted from behind and dragged into the garden of a derelict building nearby, where she was confronted with the terrifying sight of two dark-clothed, masked men, one of whom held a sharp knife to her throat. She was then stripped, blindfolded, and raped by both the men. The woman later recalled how their demeanour differed throughout the assault, the nice one and the horrible one, in the loosest possible terms, was how she was later to describe them. As the taller man, who'd raped her first, was aggressive throughout, raping her with a knife to her throat. When he'd finished, he then asked the shorter rapist, Are you ready? To which the response was an enthusiastic, Yeah. He then raped me. The bigger man was controlling both of us, it seemed the woman said in her later police statement. Both men had then fled the scene, leaving her there sobbing. She could describe her attackers no further than one of them being almost six feet tall and the other a noticeable several inches shorter, with both being masked with balaclavas, wearing dark clothing and both having London accents. The plan to abduct, disorientate, and then sexually assault and abuse a victim for the weekend had been abandoned. It was much later determined that when it came to the crunch, neither man had wished to be in sole control of the victim, whilst the other fetched the car. So they had just struck there and then. And they had loved doing it. It had left them buzzing in a state of extreme excitement. It had been so easy for them to do, they thought. It had been truly thrilling. And both agreed that it was something that they should do again. In fact, they couldn't wait to. As they began refining the plan for another attack, thinking that the next time they would do this or they would do that, each also agreed that if one of them was ever caught, the other would always stay silent. Not grasp the other up, is how they described it. This attack I've just described is the first known assault by a pair of predators. No other word will do to describe them really, who were to go on to commit pure carnage across the capital for a number of years, committing some of the most horrific offences in British criminal history, and leaving countless lives devastated, some wrecked beyond belief, and some taken. Just over three months after this attack, at five minutes past midnight on Wednesday the 15th of September 1982, and this time only a mile away in Golders Green, a 21-year-old woman walking home was abducted by two men and taken to a car, which was then driven a couple of miles away to Wasteland 
by West Beer Road in West Hampstead. As with the first described attack, she was threatened at knife point, was blindfolded and gagged, and then stripped and raped by both men in a violent assault. The woman said in her later statement, They were shouting, Bitch! Bitch! You're dead! You're dead! Leaving the traumatised woman at the scene, both men fled back to the car and sped off, while she gathered herself, then staggered to a nearby telephone box and called police. The vague descriptions of both rapists she could give tallied with that given by the victim in the June attack, which was difficult due to them being masked for most of the assault and dressed in dark, nondescript clothing, plus the darkness, and plus, of course, the obvious trauma of the situation. But she was able to describe the vehicle as being a yellow or cream coloured saloon model. She was to say of the attack to a court many years later. I still cannot be in the dark for more than a few seconds. I still have to sleep with a light on. Just six days later, on Tuesday the 21st of September 1982, a 17-year-old girl was attacked by two men at around midnight in Arkwright Road in Hampstead, quite near to Finchley Road Station. She had a particular type of belt, a maroon leather interlocking diamond design type, fastened around her neck, and was then dragged by it to an isolated spot nearby, where both men raped her. Now following this third attack, coming just days after an attack that was tentatively linked to the first one that I've described, the press did raise the profile of the attention that the crimes were receiving, and artists' impressions of both men were featured in the 22nd of October edition of the Hampstead and Highgate Express newspaper. They described both as being, I quote, in early to mid-twenties, one five feet eight inches, having dark wavy hair, fairly dark skin, and wearing a St. Christopher medallion, whilst the other is blonde, having longer hair, is heavier built, and shorter in height. Sketches of both men were shown that if you take them into account with a written description, and the benefit of a wonderful thing called hindsight, kept both rapists safe really because neither sketch looks remotely like either man, as you'll come to see. The sketches are up on the show's Instagram page, by the way. Although details of each man were in the written descriptions, specifically the notable difference in height and the age. Now you also have to take into account that victims of attacks such as these, through no fault of their own, often exaggerate some features that they can remember, possibly due to confusion, misrecollection, poor visibility, and of course, the trauma of such a situation. All of these can affect a sketch, thus rendering it misleading through the real fault of no one involved. And of course, if they're masked during an assault, well that buggers that up anyway, doesn't it? Two days after their portraits, so to speak, were out in the papers, in the early hours of Sunday the 24th of October 1982, taller and shorter, as I said, we shall refer to them going forward, were driving down Kilburn High Street, hunting, they called it, as was later established, when they spotted a 21-year-old woman coming out of a Kentucky fried chicken outlet on her way home from a party, heading back to her boyfriend's house. Pointing her out, the taller man said to his companion, sat in the passenger seat, Look, let's hunt that. Speeding on and parking in a side road ahead, and wearing sweat-style tracksuits, one light grey and one dark grey, and balaclavas, they grabbed the woman as she drew level, and pulled her into Burton Road. A strip of elastoplast was placed immediately over her mouth as she attempted to scream, and a sharp object was pressed against her side. She was later to describe, I put my hands up, and the taller man said, Don't worry, it is a knife. They then taunted her that all they wanted was the teddy bear that she was carrying at the time. As the blade was held to her throat, she was then manhandled over a four-foot wall into the grounds of a partly built house when they heard a car approaching, where both of the men then took it in turns to rape her. After they'd both run off, the shorter man then returned, dragged her back over the wall, and then ran off again. 
The victim had returned to the scene with police the next morning to find her handbag and teddy bear still there on the ground, alongside a crystal necklace she'd been wearing that had broken off as she was raped. She was to later burn the clothing she'd worn on the night she was attacked when it was returned to her, and going forward was never again to wear anything around her neck as it reminded her of the feeling of the knife being pressed against her. However, one night a few weeks later, this remarkable woman returned to Burton Road by herself and forcing herself, defiantly walked down the length of it to prove to herself that she could do so. And it is for acts like that, for people left needing to do things like that, that justice is always best served for. I hope that you agree. No more attacks were reported for the remainder of 1982, but on the 26th of March 1983, a 29-year-old manageress of a French restaurant who was walking home from work in the Finchley Road area, near Alvin Lee Gardens, was grabbed from behind by two men, but fought back desperately during the taller attacker's attempted assault of her, biting his hand badly as he tried to undo the woman's dungarees. This drove him into a further frenzy, during which, after dragging her to the ground, he began punching and kicking her viciously and repeatedly. After some prompting for him to stop from the shorter man, the pair fled out of sight down nearby Lemington Road. The victim later described her attackers as being masked, wearing leather-style clothing and black gloves. She was also to later give a quote that is widespread used throughout research materials that I obtained for the episodes. Indeed, it was to give this opening episode of the arc its title, which is as follows. They were like two bodies with one brain. They didn't tell each other anything. They seemed to just be able to communicate without words, just by nodding their heads. If you didn't already realise, they have a bit of a bond, this pair does. In early July 1983, an art student was walking on her way to visit her boyfriend in South London at 11pm when a man asked her the time. 20 yards further on, another man grabbed her from behind and held a knife to her back. She was then dragged off the road and onto a piece of land next to railway sidings, where she was pinned against the wall by the taller man, who said, My name's Dave, and I've never touched a woman before. She described many years later. He held me against the wall, blocking me with his body. My attention was focused on the knife, and all I could think of was that I was going to die. The attack was obviously premeditated, and I had a sense of leaving my body. In a situation like that, you can't scream, and you're immobilised, because your body is flooded with adrenaline. When she attempted to engage the man in conversation, he did relax his grip on her somewhat, and the woman then attempted to flee. He caught her, and this disobedience, for want of a better description, prompted him to explode with violence. Swiftly knocking the woman to the floor, he dragged her along the ground with barely disguised aggression before what was described as swiftly and angrily raping her. Both rapists then fled, leaving the woman to report the assault to police. Now following this rape, there was a seemingly six-month lull in the series of attacks. There were certainly no reported assaults involving two men in the North London area. Many sources I found through researching claim that there were no attacks whatsoever in 1983, although these sources I found to be contradicted, as the last two incidents described here for that year are certainly genuine, and charges were certainly brought at a much later date for the former of the crimes that I've just described. There may even have been offences committed during this period that were never reported. If so, then perhaps sadly even, the victims may have even taken their own lives, unable to live with the horror of what had been inflicted upon them. It certainly wouldn't be unprecedented, would it? But the pair certainly, undisputedly, returned with a vengeance in 1984. On Thursday the 20th of January 1984, Taller and Shorter found themselves in the area of Barnes Common, where they spotted a 33-year-old social worker who was walking towards the train station. 
Masking up in their now horrifically familiar fashion, the woman was accosted by both men in their now practiced and polished routine, was punched and kicked to the ground, threatened with a knife, and gagged with a rag. Before dragging her into nearby woods, the taller rapist then made horrific threats to mutilate her. She described years later, One man instructed the other to cut off my nipples and slice off my ears. I believed then that I was to be murdered, disemboweled, and tortured. Once she was there in the woods, when the taller rapist failed to achieve an erection, which had happened more than one time before during the series of attacks, he at first even had the gall to blame his victim, and then instructed the shorter man to gouge the woman's eyes out, though thankfully this was just a threat. Both men then raped her, Issuing such a threat and seeing the fear in the woman that it had brought, curing the taller rapist's impotence, and she was forced to perform oral sex upon him. The smaller of the rapists then raped her both vaginally and anally before both men fled. The woman was later to recall significant details that were added to the now developing description of the pair that the taller one had used a northern accent during the assault and that he had worn a grey zip-up jacket, as well as scruffy brown lace-up leather shoes. The smaller man, meanwhile, had worn a dark navy or black-coloured woolen-type jacket. A search of the crime scene also recovered a black plastic digital watch, with a clasp strap broken off it that was presumed to belong to one of the attackers, but no fingerprints or forensic evidence could be gleaned from it. On the evening of Sunday the 3rd of June 1984, a 23-year-old woman was accosted in the waiting room at West Hampstead Railway Station by the two men, the taller of whom had initially asked her in a deep voice with what she described as a northern accent. Does this train go to Richmond? Before she could answer him, she was grabbed from behind by both and marched out of the waiting room, down to and along the tracks to the railway bridge nearby where on an adjoining embankment, she was blindfolded and gagged with either silver mechanics or black adhesive tape, then ordered to strip completely. She described later, They had a knife and said they would cut me if I didn't do as I was told. There was a knife at my throat. They were very threatening. All I could say was, Please don't hurt me. Please don't rape me. I didn't scream because I was terrified. They told me not to make a sound or they would cut me with the knives. They said, we'll start losing bits of you if you make a noise. I believed it. I was frightened I was not going to get away. It's terrible that, eh? You don't even want to try and picture something that must have been so terrifying, so abhorrent, do you? You really, really don't. The woman was then raped by both the men. During the rape, the shorter rapist had told the other, This is a good one. She was later to describe of this statement, It was something said which made me think it had happened before. According to the woman's statement, she then managed to dress with help from the two men, and the shorter rapist then mockingly placed one of her own cigarettes into her mouth, telling the taller rapist, She needs one. Before fleeing the scene, they told her to continue walking along the tracks, the shorter rapist saying, See you again. By the time the woman had reached the next railway bridge and gotten back up onto the road, taller and shorter were driving by and spotted her staggering down the street. As they passed the distraught woman, the taller one even jokingly suggested to his companion that they stopped and offered her a lift. Callous, horrific, pure evil. How do you even describe something like that? It was the initial description of the pair, the now familiar builds, one tall and one short, both wearing dark coloured clothing, possibly hooded tops, masked during the assault, though she described the smaller of the two as being fair-haired and initially wearing a flat cap in the waiting room. She recalled also that the taller of the two attackers had worn a light-coloured shirt of some sort that she could establish as she saw the tails of it sticking out from beneath the dark top that he'd worn. 
Just over a month later, in the early hours of Sunday the 8th of July 1984, a 22-year-old woman was walking along Highgate West Hill whilst returning from a party when she was accosted in the now all-too-familiar style by the taller and shorter man. She collapsed in fear when she was grabbed, dropping her handbag, and was then dragged across the road into the grounds of a nearby house where a knife was threateningly run across her lips. As she struggled against her attackers, resisting being restrained, silenced and blindfolded with tape, one of the two men said to the other, Stab her! Stab her! Before telling her, You'd better keep quiet, you bitch! Or words to that effect, I'm sure that you can imagine. However, nearby residents had heard the girl's screams, and when they came out to see what was going on, the two men vanished, leaving the woman badly shaken, but relatively unharmed. The pair drove back past the scene shortly afterwards on their way home and saw a police presence there, which they even parked up and stopped to watch for a while. The shorter rapist crouching down in the passenger seat, so from a distance, the vehicle would appear to only have one occupant. This fueled their excitement even further, as did the discussion during the drive home about how attractive the girl had been with her model looks. Her description of the attackers was all too familiar. The taller rapist again wore a grey zip-up jacket here, while the smaller one had a dark jacket on, and at least one of the attackers was described as smelling very strongly of sweat. She claimed further that both attackers were dancing around in what was described as an excited, animated manner. When PC Norman McNamara returned with the victim to the scene the following day, he discovered a piece of sticky tape in the area that was described as being that used in the assault, which was retained and entered, though slightly incorrectly mislabeled, as Exhibit ND1. This was tested at the time for fingerprints, but it yielded no results. However, it was retained in evidence and was to prove crucial many years later. A week later, on Sunday the 15th of July 1984, the pair returned to Hampstead Heath, and this time, as well as both being armed with knives, the smaller man had an imitation Colt Python pistol with him. After a long drive around the area, at 2.30am they spotted two 18-year-old Danish au pairs who, whilst returning from a party, had missed the last northbound train home and were at the time walking up Spaniards Road, which runs across Hampstead Heath. After an initial discussion, the pair being apprehensive at first, because this time there were two victims, they got out of the car and followed them both. The girls were then confronted by two men wearing balaclavas, who forced them into a wooded area nearby that, although only seconds down from the main road, was at a lower level, thus being out of the sight of any passing motorists. Both girls were then split up, and with one held at knife point, the other having the imitation firearm pressed into her stomach, both were then raped. The taller rapist had told the victim that he had selected, Now, you have to be real nice to me, okay? She said later, He told me to take off all my clothes and lie down. Then he pulled his trousers down to his knees and lay on top of me. She was then briefly raped before the taller rapist demanded oral sex from her. The shorter one, meanwhile, had raped his selected victim, then robbed the girls of the money that they had on them, just two pounds. He had then apologised to one or both of them, it's unclear, before the men then fled. Shortly afterwards, the two women then flagged down a passing minicab driver, who found them in a state of extreme distress and dishevelment, and took them to Hampstead Police Station. This was immediately linked to the earlier attacks in the series, and an appeal was made on the ITV television programme Police 5 for information concerning this attack, but it went off on somewhat of a tangent because it repeated the misperception by the victims that both attackers were black. One of the women had described this in her statement, also furthering that the taller of the rapists had partially removed his balaclava in an attempt to kiss her, kissing her neck during the rape. Evidence retained from this attack, 
namely the clothing of both victims, didn't reveal anything of forensic value at the time, although again, it was to prove crucial many years later. In the early hours of Saturday the 26th of January 1985, a 20-year-old German au pair who'd been in the UK for just two months was walking home from a disco near to Brent Cross when she was accosted by the two men. After an unsuccessful attempt to defend herself with her umbrella, she was blindfolded and gagged with her own scarf before being marched at knife point underneath a road bridge near Brent Cross Shopping Centre before being stripped completely naked and raped by both men under a bridge that crosses the River Brent near to Prince Charles Drive. She was then told to count to a hundred before moving and was warned by the taller of the men who had forced the woman to tell them her name and address during the rape. We know where to find you if you tell anybody. The man without the knife sat down and undressed me. He wasn't rough, but he stripped me naked, she said of her ordeal later. So traumatised was the woman by the attack that she returned home to Germany shortly afterwards, and, once fluent in English, she refused to ever speak or even read the language again, forever associating it with her rape. Horrendous that, isn't it, eh? Imagine such evil actions holding you prisoner like that. Four days later, at 7pm, a 16-year-old girl came out of Hampstead Heath Railway Station and immediately heard footsteps behind her, turning to be confronted by two tracksuited masked men. The taller of the two barged into her forcefully, then put a hand over her mouth and, grabbing her hair, pulled her head back. The shorter man, meanwhile, put his right hand around her waist and pressed a sharp object against her left side, whilst both repeatedly threatened her by saying, Don't speak or you're fucking dead. Dragging the girl onto the heath, she watched as the shorter man rifled through her handbag, asking her how much money she had in her possession. She was then asked how old she was and if she was a virgin by the taller man. Pushing her to the floor, he began manhandling her and attempting to remove her clothing. But curiously, the girl vividly then remembered the watching smaller man saying, Let's forget it, let's go, I told you, none of that. He even pulled the taller man by the collar, telling him that there were people close by, when he disregarded this and showed no signs of stopping. The two men then ran off across the heath. Descriptions given to police by the traumatised girl I'm sure you can already imagine by now, the distinct height difference of a few inches between the pair, each of slim to average build, dark clothing for each, smell of sweat on the taller man, an affected accent, and it was another attack attributed to the same men who had for the past two years been running amok across the North London area. They were to add to this grim tally just two days later, on the 1st of February 1985, attacking a 23-year-old French au pair in Church Row in Hampstead. But their intended victim screamed for help so loudly that her voice gave out, raising the alarm, and after beating her so badly that she sustained severe facial bruising, her attackers ran off. She could offer very little in the way of a description, the attack happening so swiftly, but later described the attackers as wearing jeans and trainers, dark-coloured upper clothing, thick black plastic gloves, and balaclavas. Then, a month later, on the 2nd of March 1985, another 23-year-old woman was attacked as she walked to an all-night petrol station to buy cigarettes in Swiss Cottage. Being approached from behind by the two men, who had seen her walking alone and who had hurried over from a building site on the opposite side of the road. She was accosted, punched in the stomach and had a knife placed against her throat before an attempt was made to gag and blindfold her. Don't move or I'll fucking cut you, the smaller man had said. As she struggled with the taller man, in desperation, she told him that she had the AIDS virus. The smaller man, as in a previous attack, again intervened and led the taller man off, leaving the woman to contact police. Now to add to the details and descriptions that police already had of the pair, the victim here stated that the taller of the attackers had worn a black donkey-type jacket with inch-high letters 
LBC on the left lapel, and furthered that he had a prominent freckle or a mole on his chin towards his left jawline. The following evening, a 25-year-old legal secretary was listening to music on a Walkman as she was walking home from an overtime shift when she'd taken a steep downhill path off North End Way. Here, she was attacked by two men who jogged towards her, then who grabbed her as they went to pass either side of her, and dragged her onto Hampstead Heath with a knife to her back, where she was raped on a bench there by both men. I kept begging them to stop. I couldn't stop crying, and this seemed to annoy them, she said later. The taller rapist had ordered her to remove all of her clothing, but had been unable to achieve an erection, which had enraged him. He then forced the woman to perform oral sex upon him, and also orally raped her. This time, however, the violence came from the smaller rapist also, who had punched her in the face when he became aware that she was looking at him through a gap in the blindfold as he was raping her. Don't look at me, or I will tear your eyes out he'd menacingly told her. During the rape, the smaller rapist had also asked the details of her life, and when both had finished assaulting her, she was given one of her socks to clean herself up with, before the pair left the scene. Afterwards, the traumatised woman had telephoned her flatmate from a nearby call box, and her flatmate had contacted police. When the victim returned to the scene with police, she did discover a bag, but items such as £100 in cash that she'd had inside, her Walkman and her library card were found to be missing. As this card had contained the woman's address, she became terrified that the men both knew where she lived. Such was the effect that the rape had had on her that she shortly afterwards quit her promising legal career, for she'd been studying law part-time working towards a qualification in it herself and took a low-paid temping position instead in a completely different industry. It angers you, doesn't it, eh? The ripples of evil travel so far, they really, really do. Now, if like I did, you plot these attacks that I've mentioned onto a map, I don't waste my evenings, I tell you, and look at the relatively small geographical area that they've taken place in, plus you take into account the tallying descriptions and behaviours that were common with each assault. And if you were worth your salt, you'd be thinking, is there a coordinated inquiry looking for this pair? Because the same people have obviously done all of these. Now at the time, there wasn't. There had been back in 1982, but with the cessation of attacks in 1983, the inquiry team had been scaled down and reassigned. But events of July that year, were to change all that. We head now to Saturday the 13th of July 1985, which if you've got a long memory was the day of the Live Aid concerts in London and Philadelphia, arguably the band Queen's finest moment with a note heard around the world. As a bit of an aside, if you haven't yet seen Bohemian Rhapsody, then I heartily recommend that you have a look at it. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And Remy Malek, Totally deserved his Oscar for it. What an unbelievable, unbelievable performance. He was Freddie Mercury there almost. And on the night of Live Aid, Taller and Shorter struck three times in the same night. The first victim was a dancer who was walking home from a Live Aid party along Warren Mews, just off Euston Road near to Great Portland Street Station. Then, an hour later and just two miles away, a nursery school assistant was raped by both men in Kentish Town Road, but still unsatisfied with their appalling evening of horror here. An hour after that, a 24-year-old secretary was attacked and raped by both in Marsden Street, just half a mile away from the scene of the previous rape. Now following this, a massive police operation based at the time at West Hampstead Police Station to catch the two rapists terrorising North London, whom the press had nicknamed the Spiders for reasons unestablished, got underway, codenamed Operation Heart, which was an acronym of Harley's Area Rape Team, named after its initial senior investigating officer, Detective Superintendent Ian Harley. 
Operation Heart signalled the first time that the MICA computer system, the predecessor to the home system that's used by police forces today, had been released from its home at New Scotland Yard to a divisional police station, namely Hendon, where the inquiry team ultimately moved to, and was eventually to hold some 100,000 different pieces of information on suspects, as information and descriptions from the reported offences was fed into it and processed. The pattern that emerged was as follows. The attacks took place predominantly at night, usually in the early hours of the morning over a weekend, and had occurred predominantly over a four-mile square area of North London. With the exception of the two Danish girls attacked in July 1984, the victim in each attack was a lone, young female, the oldest victim being just 32. Each attack also took place at, or in the very near vicinity of, a railway station. At all times, at least one of the rapists was armed with a knife, though usually both were, and on one occasion, a replica handgun had been wielded. The modus operandi of the pair was to either approach a woman from behind, or if walking towards her, would pass her and then double back. They'd grab a side of her each, one wielding a knife, and move her away from the road to an isolated spot. In one of the early attacks, they'd even bundled the victim into a car and driven her a short distance, though this practice had been swiftly abandoned. Once accosted, the victim would then be gagged and blindfolded with strips of tape or elastoplast that were pre-cut and produced from where they were stuck inside the rapist's jacket, and their hands and thumbs bound behind them in a distinct praying position using a coarse type of string. Then, with one acting as a lookout, the other would then rape the victim or force her to perform all manner of degrading sexual acts before they switched places. During the assaults, the pair would often inquire lots about their victims' lives, forcing their name and address out of them, that type of thing, and would also often feed what police suspected was deliberate misinformation themselves to the victim. For example, calling the other by a false name, or telling them that they'd been in prison before, or had spent time in a bail hostel, and using what were obviously false accents. The rapist showed some level of forensic awareness, as they would usually provide the victim with tissues taken from a Swan Vesta matchbox, and force her to remove traces of forensic evidence that they had left from her body, with the tissues then being burnt at the scene. Before fleeing, the pair would often take property from the victim, cash, jewellery, house keys for example, and leave the victim in a complete state of undress, perhaps to degrade her further, perhaps to allow them further time to escape before the alarm was raised. It was clear that the two men fed off each other's excitement during the act, and knew each other well enough to be completely comfortable, and to almost know what the other was thinking, without words. Two bodies with one brain, the quote given earlier, is a perfect way to sum them up. Although each were predominantly masked throughout and wore dark, mostly nondescript clothing, on the occasions they had shown their faces, however briefly, the taller of the two was described as being in his early to mid-twenties, of average build, fair to light brown haired, was clean-shaven, wore an earring in his left ear and had a mole on his chin towards the left jaw. He was possibly a manual worker, thought perhaps to be for the council following the LBC that had been spotted on a jacket that he wore during one of the attempted rapes. Although in the earlier assaults he'd spoken with a London accent, he was known to affect more northern ones, speaking with a Birmingham accent, even a Scottish one on one occasion. He was consensually considered to be the more violent and physically imposing of the pair, the dominant one more than one victim claimed. He often also had problems obtaining or maintaining an erection during the assaults, which would further fuel his violence or lead to increased threats of harm towards the victim. The shorter of the pair was of a similar age, no more than 5 feet 3 to 4, and was fair-haired and moustached. More than one victim commented on the man's piercing eyes. A laser stare was the consensual description of it. 
Although he could be on occasion, he was remarkably less violent than the taller man, and was considered to be the weaker one of the two, the subservient one. He'd even apologised to victims on occasions before the pair fled the scene. He was also more inclined to speak with a London accent than to attempt to put on false accents, and he was known to be of an A-secreta blood group, following tests on forensic evidence that had been left at the scene. Between the two of them, Operation Hart believed that this pair were responsible for some 27 different attacks. Now I know that's a great deal more than I've described up to this point, but taking the information of the victim type, the methodology of the attacks, and the overall geographical location, and examining some 68 offences that had taken place between 1982 and 1985, by August 1985, the Operation Heart Inquiry team had linked several other offences over the time frame, this time involving a lone offender, that were added to the list. One of the men had been attacking alone, as well as in tandem, for at least a year by that point. The solo attacks had started in June 1984, when on Wednesday the 6th of June at 4.30pm, a woman was raped in the vicinity of Richmond Park and Richmond Station by an attacker who accosted her at knife point, moved her into undergrowth nearby and raped her. Another linked attack followed just two days later, on the 8th of June at Highgate West Hill near Upper Holloway Station, and then a staggered period of solo attacks began that interspersed the attacks that I've recounted here already, and when you put them together, the attacks began increasing in horrifying frequency. The solo offences linked by Operation Heart are as follows. Thursday the 22nd of November 1984, Upper Richmond Road near to Barnes Common Station. 12th of December 1984, Shire Hall Road, Hendon, near to Brent Cross Station. 24th of February 1985, Hadley Wood Station, North London. 3rd of March 1985, North End Way, near to Hampstead Station. 22nd of May 1985, Petersham Road, near to Richmond Station. 28th of June 1985, Whitchurch Lane, Edgware, near to Cannons Park Station. 2nd of August 1985, Finchley Road, Hampstead, near to Finchley Road Station. As the hunt for the rapists continued, there was a further solo attack on Sunday the 22nd of September 1985, in Muswell Hill Road, near to Highgate Station, and then another in the same road just short of three weeks later. Now there are scant details to research about each of these crimes I've just mentioned. I did proper trawl, but I could find little more than dates and locations here. No specific victim details are available for the majority of these. No press reports, the best part of bugger all. There could of course also have been others that went unreported, so an exact number cannot be established. But the MO of the rapist can be gleaned from the evidential statements of the victim attacked on the 24th of February 1985 at Hadley Wood Station, a 17-year-old auxiliary nurse who was stood at the deserted platform on her way to visit her boyfriend. As she stood there, she was approached by a short, fair-haired man who made conversation and asked her about the train times then smiled and commented that whenever they were due, they were usually late by about two hours. As she turned back around from this chit-chat, the man then placed his arm around her neck. She said later, I looked down and there was a knife at my throat. He said if I screamed or struggled, he would slash my throat. He held me with his other arm so I couldn't move. He put his arm around me to make it look as if we were a couple from behind but he still had the knife at my neck. I thought maybe he was going to kill me. The woman was then moved swiftly off the platform and into undergrowth nearby, where she was blindfolded and had her hands tied behind her back in the all-too-familiar praying position. She was then raped. She continued, When he'd had his way, he didn't give a damn about me. I was so frightened and in such shock, I didn't know what was happening. I thought he was going to slash my throat or something. 
Instead, after producing the all too familiar tissues and giving her a small plastic comb to run through her pubic hair, thus eliminating any forensic traces he may have left, he was almost amiable with her and then even asked her if she'd ever thought of doing self-defence, claiming that it was something he'd done himself for four or five years. After robbing the nurse of her property, he even gave her a pound for her train fare home before he ran off. So, if this was one of the offences that Operation Hart had linked to the series by a solo attacker, it was as clear as day to the investigating officers that this rapist was likely the shorter of the pair who had been attacking women across North London over the previous three years, now branching out on his own and raping solo, as well as in tandem with his despicable partner in crime. The inquiry team had amassed a database of sexual offenders that was codenamed, somewhat informally, the Z-Men List, containing almost 2,000 names of men arrested for sexual offences in the London and Home Counties areas over the time frame that were A-Secretors, and they felt most likely that this man was somewhere on that list. This, remember, is in the days when DNA profiling was in its proper infancy only having been discovered the previous year. So it was a case of working through the list, ruling out each name one by one, old-fashioned knocking on doors and plenty of walking around type policing. And the shorter man, though it wasn't realised at the time, was on this list, number 1594. As this painstaking, time-consuming process continued then, there was another rape, again by a single offender, in Muswell Hill Road, near to Highgate Station, on Friday the 11th of October 1985. Then, just over a month later, on the 20th of November 1985, a 20-year-old woman was confronted by a single man at 3.30pm at the rear of Coptall Sports Centre in Mill Hill in North London. At knife point, she was dragged into bushes at the top of a footpath running at the rear that adjoins Pursley Road and was raped. She could offer police a very good description of the rapist. In his mid-twenties, small in stature, wearing a blue and red jacket, jeans and a flat cap, having pockmarked skin and red to fair hair, that along with the geography and the methodology, satisfied police that this was another attack by the same man that Operation Heart was seeking. Now an added feature here was that a similarly described man had been seen hanging around the footpath a short time before and who appeared to have had a small Labrador-type brown-coloured dog with him that answered to the name Bruce. An appeal containing an artist's impression of both the man and his dog even was featured on the Incident Desk segment of the December 1985 edition of Crime Watch UK. By the way, that's a show that used to be on doing good before the BBC pissed about with it and ultimately cancelled it because they're twats. And which brought what was quoted on the later update of the show as a heartening response. Many local people had gotten in touch to suggest names for the rapist and at least one victim who hadn't previously reported the attack now came forward to say that she'd been raped by the same man although specific details were not forthcoming. Well done for cancelling it, BBC. Less than two weeks after this attack, on the 2nd of December 1985, the shorter man, meanwhile, appeared before Hendon Magistrates for a hearing where the court was to automatically renew the bail terms that had been approved by the Crown Court on him in July of that year on charges of domestic abuse. Now that's a bit of an umbrella term that is, domestic abuse, for the charge he'd been reported for was for the rape of his own estranged wife in Hendon Park in July 1985, a month after she'd left him, in which he'd threatened her with a butterfly-type knife. He'd been arrested, charged and bailed for this pending trial on December the 2nd of the same year, whilst his wife had also taken out an injunction against him. However, Whilst he was still on bail for this, he telephoned her and asked her to come and meet him to talk. Once she did so, the talk soon descended into abuse from him, and when she left, he followed her back to the home of her new boyfriend, 
He then forced his way into the house and producing a spring-loaded kosh, attacked both of them, which left them requiring hospitalization for each for serious head injuries. Once again arrested and charged with a further offence of malicious wounding, despite police opposition, he was again bailed when he appeared at West Acton Crown Court on the 19th of September of that year. But at this hearing on December the 2nd, which delayed the trial until the 5th of March 1986, and as we said, automatically renewed the bail terms that were previously imposed, an officer there at the court noticed the shorter man's distinct similarity to the description of the copped hall attacker, and was so struck by his likeness that he arranged for him to take part in an identity parade a few days later, which the shorter man did, although the victim in that case failed to identify him. On the 24th of December 1985, a woman who was travelling the North London line eastbound from West Hampstead Station became so frightened of a man in the same railway carriage as her who was sat staring at her, a small statured, red-haired man, that when the train stopped at Homerton Station, which wasn't even her stop, that she leapt onto the platform and approached one of two men who were standing there waiting, pretending that the stranger was her husband. The train doors closed and the train continued on its way, the man not getting off to follow her. Now she didn't report this incident initially, but subsequent events that were reported in the upcoming weeks were to lead to her to contact police at both Notting Hill and West Hampstead, and then once again following a crime watch appeal in February 1986. That woman would later have cause to think that she will never be luckier than opting to get off that train when she did, because when he had appeared in the police lineup less than three weeks before, although the Copdall rape victim had not picked him out, he had certainly recognised her, because he was, of course, her attacker. It was perhaps this close call that had finally brought home to him the realisation that due to the increasing frequency of the offences, one day, one victim would notice or recall something that would ultimately identify either him or his taller partner in crime. The basic horrific realisation that the more victims who survived, the more who could identify them or him had dawned on him. And just four days after this, just one stop east along from Homerton Station at Hackney Wick, he and his partner in crime rectified this in their next attack which we shall find out all about in the second part of the Thriller arc, because that's a perfect place to leave the tale for the time being. All of my thoughts and summing up as I usually do, well that won't be coming until the tale is out there in full. It is a truly horrific and complex tale this one is. Yet as I said at the start, it's one of the most fascinating cases that you will ever come across, a case that I've long studied, and a tale that I've long planned to bring to the show to give my own spin on. Now we'll be a few weeks at this one, I don't yet know if it will be quite as long as Maniac, but it is a few parter, I warn you, the entire tale justifies nothing less. And for Patreon subscribers, once the full lot is done and released, I shall be splicing them all together to make a super long tale, advert and bullshit waffle free, like I did a couple of months ago with Mari's story and the crimes of Gavin Maguire. In the meantime, I shall wind up here now and crack right on with the next part then, which you can catch here the next time around. I thank you all very much for joining me for the first part of the thriller arc, Two Bodies with One Brain, which I hope you found both interesting and informative, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall catch you very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.